Well, it is good to be back with you today. First Baptist Church, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. If I can get there. Last week, in John chapter 5, we opened up this account of Jesus by the pool of Bethesda as He encountered what I called there a sad state of affairs. A large multitude of people that were sitting around this pool and their hope, the, the, uh, the, the word of the day was that if you were to get into this pool, when the waters were stirred up, you would be healed. And so there's all these people that are crippled, that are unable to care for themselves, and they gather around this pool. And when they see the water bubble up, there's this mad dash for everyone to get into the water in hopes that they would be physically healed. And I called that scene of all these people unable to help themselves a sad state. But I think today we see something even worse. Because this week, this week we see hearts that are so hard, they are unable to see the truth right there before their eyes. They're so caught up in their idea of what true religion is, that they miss a glorious work of God right before their eyes. Just to recap, you remember, we saw Jesus approach this man by the pool, if you were not here last week, and out of this whole group of people that were sick, he chose one, and he went to that man and he asked him if he wanted to be healed. And we saw that by a word, Jesus was able to heal this man's paralysis. He was able to stand up after being sick for 38 years. And in that moment, he stood up. His legs were strong, ligaments restored. He picked up his mat, and there he went. And we talked about the fact that Jesus still heals, still has power and authority to heal our bodies. But maybe, or definitely so much more important than that, is that Jesus heals our souls. And He brings total and perfect restoration to our souls when He calls us to Himself and when we believe on Him in faith. We move now to the encounter that He has with the Jews because as we closed last week, John said something there, that this incident takes place on the Sabbath. And as we see this in many of the following encounters of Jesus with the Pharisees, a lot of their problem is the things that He does on the Sabbath. So my outline is, is kind of simple today. It's just three points. The crime, the charge, and the response. And you see there in brackets, I have the supposed crime. The supposed crime, the charge, and then the response. So let's turn now to the Word. This is the Word of the Lord. We'll start in John chapter 5, verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, 
that nothing worse may happen to you. That man, the man, went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, we'll talk about that, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. First aspect of the story is the the crime of Jesus, the offense or the supposed offense. We see that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. This is a common issue of contention between him and the Pharisees, between him and the Jewish leaders. I find it kind of ironic that their greatest concern that the Jews have here in this story is not that some guy has just come on the scene and he's doing miracles, but the fact that some other man was was carrying a mat on the Sabbath. And we'll talk some more about that as we go. But I think to help us understand this, I want to talk for a little bit about the Sabbath. I know we all have something general in mind when we think about the Sabbath, but I think it would be good to have a little bit of a refresher because as we continue through John and as you read all of the Gospels, much of the controversy that comes to Jesus is because of the things that He does often on the Sabbath. Uh, So that we can get God's perspective on the Sabbath and not the Pharisees. Let's turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Chapter 20 is, of course, the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. And we pick up in verse 8, where we read about the fourth commandment, which is in regards to the Sabbath. So Exodus 20, verse 8, says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, your son or, or you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Excuse me. So we learn much here about the Sabbath. This is God's um, explanation of the Sabbath here in Exodus 20. First thing we see to answer the question, what is the Sabbath, is that it is a holy day. The Sabbath is a day that is meant to be holy. And when we think about that word holy in the Hebrew and kind of the root of what it means, it means or has the idea there to cut, to cut off or to separate So we see that the Sabbath is a day that is set apart or cut from the rest of the week. It is a day that is to be marked off. It is a day that is to look different than the rest of the week. This is similar to the nation of Israel. God called them to be holy. And a big part of that is that they were to be cut off from the rest of the world. They were to be separate, distinctive. 
So much so that you could see them, the way they spoke, the way that they ate, the way that they dressed, the way that they groomed their beard. All of these things were to mark them off as separate from the world or holy. So the Sabbath is a holy day. It is also a day of rest from work or a rest from the daily grind of business. And you notice that he said, not just you. It's not just me that I need to take the day off. But he said, your sons and your daughters, your hirelings, people, your servants, all are to take a Sabbath rest. The idea behind that is, I think, to prevent a person like myself, if I had a business, from going into the shop and saying, okay, get everything set up, get everyone working, make sure everything, this is all the projects we have for the day, and I'm going to go home and I'm going to observe the Sabbath, but I'm going to make sure that the money is still coming in over here. And he says, no, everyone is to rest. Your hirelings, your, your servants, even the sojourner, the guest in your home, everyone is to take this Sabbath day. To put it in an ancient way, I heard a pastor say one time, you don't put your ox on the plow and then dangle a carrot before his face and then go sit on the couch as if you are observing the Sabbath while the work continues. But all of the daily grind worldly affairs were meant to cease. But it's not just a rest from work. We also see number three, that it is a rest in the Lord. You see that in verse 10. He said that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So the Sabbath was not just a day off, not just a day to kick back your feet and take a rest, but it was a day to find rest in God, a day to pursue the Lord, a day to have communion with God. We also see that it is a day of worship. If you would turn your Bible just over to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23.3 Similar wording from the last passage. Uh, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Another translation for that is a sacred assembly. So we see that on the Sabbath... Public worship happened. The church gathered, or the people of God gathered in a sacred assembly, in a holy convocation to worship the Lord. And then lastly, we see that the Sabbath is always grounded in creation. Did you notice how when the, the command was initially given in Exodus 20, it was grounded in creation, that this is what God did. God worked for six days, and He rested on the seventh. He showed us this pattern. He modeled this behavior even at creation for us. So this Sabbath understanding is not something just given in the Ten Commandments, but it is something that God instituted, modeled at creation. And we see that because if we were to go to Exodus 16, remember we just read 20, that was where the command was given. But before that, in Exodus 16, you remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they were hungry? And they cried out to God for food. They were complaining. And God fed them miraculously with a manna from heaven. And He told them to only gather how much? One day's worth. Right? One Gather what you need for today and that's it. But He says on the sixth day, grab a double portion 
For the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest to the Lord. So even before the law was given in Exodus 20, the Sabbath was being observed in chapter 16. So that's what it is. It's a holy day. It's a day of rest from a cease of work, from worldly affairs, but also a rest in the Lord. It is a day of worship, and it is a day that is grounded in creation. What is the purpose of it? Why was it given to us? I think ultimately to be a blessing. At the root of it, the Sabbath is given to be a blessing to the people of God. You remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 2. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not meant to be a burden for the people, but it was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be a day of rest, a day that they could find time with the Lord. And I think the purpose here as a blessing is to fend off two tendencies that we may have. Two tendencies that they had, and I think two tendencies that that many people have. The first of those is some of us are tempted to work way too much. All we want to do is work, right? And it's hard for some people to take a day off because any time you take a rest from work, it's leaving money on the table, right? There's a paycheck that could have been earned. There's there's money that could have been made. I need to provide, need to get ahead, need to need to save, whatever it is. And some of us just have that mentality that we just need to work. There's always something to do. There's always something that's behind. Always something to get done. And the Lord says, no, you need to mark off a day every week for me. Rest from worldly affairs in a day that is set aside wholly to me to set your mind on things above. I think there's also a temptation for some of us on the other side of that to be lazy in our relationship with the Lord. To be lazy in our relationship with the Lord where we say, you know, I know God. I believe in God. That's enough. I don't need to be concerned with all of that relationship stuff, with all of that worship stuff, with all of that public worship. But I know God. I believe in Jesus. And I think that is enough. And the Lord here in the Old Covenant gives this command that one day of the week needs to be set apart to him, that it's that important that he wants Israel to have a day every week that is marked off as holy to him, where we lay down the worldly stuff, lay down the busyness of life, all the stress, all the stuff that is good and right that we have to get done and focus on him. So that I believe is is God's heart for the Sabbath, what it is and why he has given it. As we see now back in John, the difficulty that Jesus has with the Jews, I think all of this comes down to a question of what does it mean to work? That's kind of the fundamental issue of Jesus between the Jews. What really is work? When God says on the Sabbath, rest from your work, what does that mean? Well, if you know anything about the Jews, they were very specific. So to answer this question, they defined what it means to work in 39 different categories. So there's 39 different categories that they laid out, not found in the Scripture, to try to define what it means to work. So they could try to really do this Sabbath thing. So they had different rules. Can you ignite a fire? Can you extinguish a fire? And they would say that you cannot extinguish a fire. Um, if, your, if your home is, is at risk of being burned down, too bad. You can't extinguish a fire because you'd be breaking the Sabbath. You'd be working. 
But if there was a life that was threatened, then it would be okay. Then you could put the fire out. But any other circumstance, you'd be breaking the Sabbath because you'd be working by extinguishing a fire. They also said that a man should lift not much more than a thimble of milk because he would be carrying a burden if he lifted something heavier and thus doing work and breaking the Sabbath. Does that sound like work to you, taking a drink out of a glass? Uh, They would say that you should not move your chair in your house from this side of the room to that room, that side, on the Sabbath because you would be working, you'd be carrying a load or carrying a burden. So many more categories that they tried to define the Sabbath. But does that really sound like what the Lord means when He says, rest from your labors? It sounds like more work, right? Am I, if I do this, am I breaking the Sabbath? If I do this, can I get up? Is this allowed? Is this not allowed? What should I do? So they had taken this, this blessing that God had given to His people to have a day of rest, and they had turned it into this great burden placed upon the people of God. So that is the offense, the supposed crime that Jesus has committed, is that He has done this thing on the Sabbath. And they perceive that to be a breaking of the Sabbath law. Uh, The next thing we see then is the charge that they have against Him. The charge that they levy against Him. In verse 16 of John chapter 5, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So we see their charge there, it's twofold. Number one, He's breaking the Sabbath. And number one, He is making Himself equal with God. I want to think about that first charge for a moment. Is is John saying there, that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. Because He just kind of plainly says it. This was their charge. He was breaking the Sabbath. And I want, to, I want to think about that question for a moment. Was Jesus breaking the Sabbath? It seems to say that He was. Um, I think we want to answer this question carefully because the way we answer it is going to have a ripple effect through the rest of our theology and doctrine. Two things to think about to try to answer this question. Did Jesus break the Sabbath. Uh, Number one, I think we see that the Sabbath is a moral command. The Sabbath is not just a ceremonial thing that was given as part of all the rituals of the worship of Israel. But where did we find the law or the command for the Sabbath given? Found in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not all of the religious system and rituals of Israel that was done away with in Christ. But I think we would agree that the Ten Commandments are still a standard of God's righteousness today that we look to. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first four. And He said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's five through ten. It's both sides of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love neighbor. So I think we see that the Sabbath is more than just a ceremonial thing from the Old Testament but it is part of God's moral law. So breaking it would be a sin. But I think we would all agree that the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is sinless. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.21, we use this in in our liturgy. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. 
Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about Jesus as our high priest. It says that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And then 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So not only is Jesus sinless, but Paul said in Corinthians that he is our righteousness. And if the Sabbath is moral, and Jesus broke the Sabbath, then Jesus sinned. Uh, so I don't think that that is what John is trying to say there, but it seems to me that John is saying that the perception of the Jews, this is why they were persecuting him, because they perceived him to be breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. If we think about the Jews' perspective for a moment, I just want to zoom out. and You know, there is legalism, and then there is legalism. I mean, look what's taking place here in our story. A man has been healed. He's, he's simply walking with his mat. And the Jews come at him and charge him with breaking the Sabbath. Now, I want to give the Jews the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't see this man healed. Maybe they didn't know that he had been previously paralyzed and they just witnessed him carrying his mat. That, that could be true. So let's check it out in verse 10 and see what the story says. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who healed you? No, that's not what they said. They said, Who is the man who said to take up your bed and walk? They're so stuck on the law they're so focused on this supposed infraction of the law that they missed the whole thing that God had just done. God had just done a miracle. They just, this guy just said, hey, the guy who healed me. And they didn't even hear those words because they were so focused that he had picked up his mat and carried it on the Sabbath. And I think in this encounter, we see the great error of the Jews. The, 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 the big problem that they had I believe, is that they missed the whole purpose of the law because they actually thought they could keep it. They actually thought that they could keep the law of Moses, and when they did, God would accept them according to their own righteousness. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul tells us that the law was never there to save anyone. No one can be justified by it, but it is there to show us sin, to give us a knowledge of our sin, to reveal man's sinfulness, to reveal my inability to keep the law, and then to drive me to God for help, to drive you to God for help. But the Jews, in their 39 categories of Sabbath-keeping, thought if we could define this thing enough, if we, could, if we could outline every single thing that is work and does not work, then surely we can, we can do it. We can measure up to God's standard. We can keep His law. But this is really the definition of legalism. Meriting salvation or meriting blessing, meriting favor from God through our rule-keeping. The thinking that the more rules I keep, the more God likes me, the more good I do, the, the better standing that I have with God. 
but it's a total misunderstanding of grace. It really takes grace out of the picture. And as obvious as it may be for us to see that the Jews were off, I think as Christians, we at times can fall into the same trap. Fall into the same trap of measuring our standard, our standing before God based on our performance. Maybe we don't say, we wouldn't say that God saved me because of my good works. I don't think anyone's talking like that. But like the Jews at times, I think we can measure our Christianity according to our performance, or maybe sometimes lack thereof. So my behavior currently, my spiritual habits, my time in the Word, my prayer life, my interaction with my family and friends, how am I treating my wife today, my children, uh, my current battle with sin and temptation. Uh, We let these things become a scale or a measuring rod of our standing before God. Does God accept me today? Does God, does God accept me today? Does He love me today? Or has He turned His back on me based upon my performance? Maybe at times we can fall into the trap of, of comparing ourselves to other Christians. We look at others that are supposedly doing better than us, uh, and we become discouraged. How come they live like this? How come I struggle? like I do, how come this person does not struggle like I do, and we can at times fall into despair, fall into discouragement. And on the other side of that, sometimes uh, we look at other believers that we may feel more holy than, that we may have uh, more discipline than, and, and we say, where's everybody at? How come they're not living like I do? How come they don't read like I do? How come they don't study like I do? How come they're not in church? I'm here at church. Where are they at? And we have a tendency to be filled up with pride or to be puffed up. But beloved, I want you to hear these words, that our standing is in Christ and in Christ alone. The only way anyone is ever going to stand before God accepted on Judgment Day is because of the merit, not of ourself, but the merit of another. The merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and the perfect work that He accomplished on Calvary's cross. And if you at times are tempted to be discouraged because your walk with God is not where you wish it would be, then I want you to hear these words of the Apostle Paul. He says in Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God chose you, God called you, and God saved you according to His grace alone. It was His grace that sought you out. It was His grace that bought you. And it was His grace that keeps you in right standing with Him. We never merited salvation in the beginning. And our behavior today does not dictate God's love for us one way or the other. But if you're on the other side of that, maybe at times you're tempted to look at your own works and have a sense of pride. You know, you figure when you're doing good, God's God's light, God's God's smile is, is shining down on me and maybe his, his clouds is, is, is frowning upon the next man. Uh, Paul has a word for that as well. He says in Galatians that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
There is no law-keeping that anyone can do that can merit God's favor. It is all of grace. And I want to, I want to say this, that good works are good. Obedience is good. There are many commands in Scripture that Christ calls us to obey, that we should seek to follow. But they should always be in a response to grace. Our obedience, our faithfulness, should always be in a response to the grace that we have been shown, not to earn God's love, but responding to it. And I think the Pharisees had this idea completely backwards. They thought that they could earn God's favor through their law-keeping, through their keeping of the Sabbath. And that gets me to the last point, and that is the response of our Lord. The response of our Lord. He says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. When they hear these words, they want to kill Him. They They want to put Him to death. Because Jesus is making Himself equal with the Father. He has put Himself on equal footing with God. And He does this all over the Gospels. Later in this chapter, He says, I can do nothing on My own. He does the will of Him who sent Him. He says in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. He puts Himself on equal footing with the Father. And the Jews... They want to kill him. He makes this statement, My father is working and I am working. What is, he, what is he talking about there? I think number one, he is speaking of God. And when I say God here, I mean Father, Son, and Spirit. The fact that God is always, moment by moment, sustaining and governing the universe. As God rests on the seventh day in creation, as He models that for us, it doesn't mean that, that once a week uh, God kicks up His heels and takes a break from governing the universe and things just kind of happen as they happen and God lets it be. But that every moment, constantly, He is governing and sustaining the entirety of His creation. So gravity right now holds us down to this earth because God is at work. The earth sits on its axis and rotates as it does. Your heart beats in your chest Birds have food. Seasons continue on as they do because God is constantly at work. We read this in Colossians in regards to Jesus, that in Him all things hold together. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So He's showing the Jews that Himself and His Father are constantly at work. The only reason... That the universe is working as it does. It's because Jesus and the Father are constantly upholding it. So as I close, um, we've seen one of many encounters with Jesus in regards to the Sabbath. Jesus and the Jews. And you may say, you know, why spend all this time on the Sabbath? This is an Old Testament thing. Um, why are we why are we defining the Sabbath? Why look into it? Is this relevant today? I want to give you a little food for thought as we as we close the message. Uh, just something to think about. So yes, for sure, Christians by and large do not celebrate a Saturday Sabbath. We worship on Sunday, what we call the Lord's Day. We see in the book of Acts, chapter twenty, 
verse 7, that the church gathered to break bread, which we understand to mean to receive the Lord's Supper, on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And then we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And the testimony of the church, as soon as the Bible closes, as soon as the New Testament closes, is that the church worshipped not on Saturday, but on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was resurrected. So yes, we do not celebrate a Saturday Sabbath. We worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday. But as we consider the Sabbath, if, if it is truly part of the moral law, and I, and I leave that up to you to consider, uh, the, the Sabbath is one of Ten Commandments. I don't think any of us would say that the Lord does not care about commands one through three of how we worship. And I don't think that we would say He does not care about five through ten. Um, so does He still care about the fourth commandment? So the question that I want to leave you with um, to think about maybe in a discussion when you get home as you study the Word, should the church take serious the Christian Sabbath? Or maybe, maybe you don't even recognize that name, um, the uh, Christian Sabbath. But should we take the Sabbath seriously? Should we cease from work on the Lord's Day? Is that a command that is relevant for the church today? Should we set apart the whole day to the Lord? Or is it just about morning worship? Is this legalism? Is this too much to even consider? Uh, because we are now under grace and under the Lord Jesus Christ in a different covenant. I just want to leave you with that to chew on. And my hope for my own doctrine, my own practice, always is that it would constantly be reformed according to the light of Scripture. And I hope to model that for us as a church and, and lead in that endeavor that everything that we do, whether it's what we believe or how we live, would be held up to the light of Scripture. So let's pray.